Welcome to BIPAC News on the Jewish TV channel. I'm Nia Lecht, education analyst, and we have an amazing guest with us today, a true warrior, a friend to the Jewish people in the land of Israel, a truth seeker, an inspiration to so many across the world. And, and I really personally feel so privileged and honored to be able to speak with Colonel Richard Kemp. Now, I want to properly introduce uh Colonel Kemp to you all, and he has a very robust biography, but I'm just going to, I picked a, a few important highlights. So Colonel Richard Kemp has spent most of his life combating terrorism and insurgency in Iraq, the Balkans and Northern Ireland, where he was wounded in a terrorist attack. Um, he was the commander of the British forces in Afghanistan in 2003. His name appeared on the Al-Qaeda kill list in 2013, and I think he finds that quite an honor uh, to, to be on the hit list of Al-Qaeda. As well as leading at the sharp end of conflict, he has been involved in the direction of national policy at really the highest level in the British Prime Minister's office, heading international terrorism intelligence teams. And But in addition to his uh, you know, record, uh, military combat and advising on terrorism, he has also taken a passionate interest in advocating for the Jewish people, which we're going to dive into today to understand why what, why did uh, Colonel Kemp decide to become this really important, prominent speaker for the Jewish advocate world. Now, having been present during recent military operations in Gaza and Judea Samaria, he has defended the state of Israel and its armed forces at the United Nations at several national legislation levels, including the U.S. Congress, the U.K. Parliament, and international media. He is a founding board member of Friends of Israel Initiative, a senior associate fellow of the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security, a fellow of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, and a distinguished senior fellow at the Gainstone Institute which I think you've written some amazing, important articles highlighting and really exposing Soviet influence in the PLO. I've read some of your work and I find it to be very important. So I, I welcome others to read your work as well from the Gatestone Institute. Uh, I could say so much more. It's it's a you know it, you have your own Wikipedia page, um, but I want to just get into it. I want to frame this conversation. I want to be you know, very honest and transparent in the sense that we will be speaking about some thorny topics, maybe spicy ones. Now, I have been in the space of Jewish education and activism for a few years, but as a Jew, and you bring to this conversation and this perspective a very unique voice, a very unique window lens, being non-Jewish and being, so today I want to talk to you about what is it that you see in terms of how does how are we Jewish people combating anti-Semitism? What are we doing right? What are we not doing right? So this is what I want to get into. So my first question to you is why did you even become interested in advocating for the Jewish people in Israel? Why? Before I answer that question, I'd like to uh, say what a pleasure it is to join you and your viewers today. And I, I'm a great admirer of your incredible work that you do. You and I have uh, done various things together over the past, involving mainly involving the <clears throat> the education of teenagers in the United States, um, and, and I think what you do is absolutely incredible. So keep keep that up; it's uh, it's fantastic work. Um, the answer to your question is that I was when I was a child, I was taught right from wrong, and uh, when when I saw what was happening and understood what was happening 
in relation to Israel on the world stage, the way that Israel was being vilified, condemned, and really unjustly criminalized in, in various different forums, in the media, in universities, in the United Nations, in various governments. Um, I, Knowing, knowing right from wrong and knowing from personal experience of 30 years about the type of conflict Israel's been fighting, given that most of the criticism or much of the criticism against Israel is to do with military operations, I, I felt I had no choice other than to uh, stand up and, and give the real perspective, give an objective view on it from an experienced individual who not only have I taken part in the different campaigns you mentioned, but also I've been extremely familiar over many years with Israel's way of operating. Uh, and so that it, it, I was re left really with, with no choice apart from to do that. And, and one, one thing that I think motivates me as well is that Israel and Great Britain are close friends and allies. Um, we, we get a lot from our relationship with Israel. If you put aside even the incredible trade relationship we have and the cultural relationship we have, from my perspective, the intelligence relationship, the security relationship is so important. Both of us gain from it, both Britain and Israel gain from it. I think we're the net beneficiaries and many British lives have been saved by, for example, Israeli intelligence, Israeli counter bomb technology, Israeli battlefield medical technology. And I visited a young man in hospital, a young British soldier, 18 years of age, a number of years ago now, who'd been blown up in Afghanistan a few days before he was in hospital in the UK, having his having himself repaired. He lost at least one, two limbs and an eye, I think. Um, and he knew, that young man knew, that he owed his life to Israeli battlefield medical technology because he'd been administered a clotting agent on the battlefield, the, the best in, anywhere in the world, provided by Israel, that stopped him from bleeding to death. And that's just one of many, many other examples I could give you as to the importance of Israel to the UK and why I think it's extremely important that any right-thinking person stands up and rejects the lies spoken about Israel. Listening to you, you know, I have to say the first thing that you said, you grew up knowing right from wrong. And that's such a, you know, it's 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 a very simple thing that you say. And Indeed, I've worked with many American Jewish teens, and I would say that it's not even that the education is lacking, it's the more moral compass. And it it's a you know, I I think that is the biggest battle, really, on the battlefield of ideas and a battlefield of morality is is not necessarily, you know, educating. Yes, that's very important. But the fact that you were able, because you were taught right from wrong, and that's so such a simple idea, but so needed in our civilization today. It's really, but so let me ask you this question. When, what year was it the first time that you visited Israel? Oh, no, it's going back a long time. I, I, I but, first let, let me qualify this. When was the first time you visited as a military advisor? It's somebody who would advise militarily. I went, I went there. I went on holiday a couple of times, actually, um, many, many years ago. But the first time I went, I went on duty when I was working for the British Cabinet Office, the Prime Minister's Office on international terrorism. And I went over there. It was around about, must have been about 2003 or thereabouts, um, working and, and having meetings and talks with Mossad uh, over joint intelligence concerns between our two countries. We held talks frequently either in Israel or in 
the UK or wherever. Uh, and that was the first. So, so it was, I can't remember exactly, but it was around so about what was two. the first thing, you know, we have the Israel, the idea, and then you come and see it. What was it that when you first saw it, what's something that shocked you pleasantly or unpleasantly? What was something that you, that you thought, and then you had to kind of recalibrate a bit, perhaps? I, I, I don't think I, when I went there the first time, um, I don't think I had any illusions. I don't didn't go with any illusions about Israel. I expected a great deal from Israel. I'd studied Israeli, particularly Israeli military operations from when I was 18 years old, before I was 18, actually, when I was still at school. Um, we, you know, in the British Army, we studied Israeli operations because we wanted to learn from them, and we did learn from them. And later, that was conventional warfare. Later, we learned from their terrorism techniques and practices. So I, I knew a great deal about it, and nothing came to me as a surprise. I, I think it was, you know, I, I obviously hadn't experienced Israeli society before I went there, but I found it to be extremely appealing and extremely attractive um, in every way. The weather was fantastic for a start. The beaches were great in Tel Aviv. The, the Some of the sites I saw in Jerusalem, and, and amazingly, the first time I ever visited the holy sites in Jerusalem, I was taken around by a Mossad Jewish Mossad guide to the Christian sites in, in Jerusalem, which was quite a, a bizarre thing. But uh, no, it, it, it met my complete expectations. I went, I went with my daughter, both my daughters actually, a few years later, and they were absolutely blown away by the place. Um, they, they, they'd obviously heard all the propaganda against Israel. They, they also knew what I had to say about it, and I hope they accepted what I said, but they, they'd heard all the propaganda. But they they went there, I think they went there thinking they were going to be in some sort of shanty town in the middle of Africa. Um, and it was just all camels and donkeys mm-hmm. and things like that. And they found this really, you know, very, for, for young girls as they were at the time, they still are fairly young, um, sort of glitzy, attractive, cosmopolitan city of Tel Aviv. And then the, the really real contrast in Jerusalem with the historical sites. And and we tr- we toured a lot of rural areas in the country as well, up in the Galilee and uh, down in the Negev, etc. And and yeah, they found it absolutely incredible. So I, uh, you know, and I and I, I go there frequently. I'm there several times each year. Mm-hmm. Whenever I arrive, I don't want to leave, even if it's I'm just going there to work, to do you know innumerable meetings. I still don't want to leave the place because it's such a fantastic country it with is, such it brilliant. Is. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's let's take a little bit of a more serious uh, turn here. All your years on in combat, you've seen some very difficult things, I'm sure. You also understand military strategy. Now, I believe that the Jewish people are fighting on two fronts. Uh, one front is in Israel, is is existential. It's on their skin, as they say. And the other front is the Jewish diaspora fighting a narrative war. Can we, so here's the two questions. Can we apply certain strategies from the battlefield, from physical warfare into narrative warfare? And if so, what would those be? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say about all that, you're absolutely right, it's a two-front war. In fact, multiple fronts, but in in broad terms, it's two fronts. And, and, And Israel is very, very capable from my own personal experience, Israel is very, very capable of fighting the war on the battlefield. And that includes, you know, the the, the terrorist war that's going on within Israel itself. Um, so, so Israel can do that. What Israel desperately needs help with 
is that other front, the 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 propaganda war, the the war of delegitimization, the BDS, etc. And that's where the um the diaspora is absolutely critical. And I, I speak frequently to groups from the Jewish diaspora around the world, including frequently in the United States. I'm going there very soon as well. Um, and the, 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 the work, there's a lot of work goes on. A lot of people are, are pretty focused on this campaign to, to defend Israel against the lies. And it's, it's incredibly important that they do so. And I think one, one thing I would say, that, well, there's a couple of things that I could take, as I think you asked me what, what kind of lessons from the battlefield can be learned by people dealing with this other front. One of them is really an, an area of your great specialization, which is training. And you never send a soldier into battle unless he's properly trained to fight. That, that would be, obviously, there are emergency situations where that may not be possible. But generally speaking, it would be gross dereliction to do that. So they have to be trained to fight. In the same way, people who are fighting the propaganda, the narrative war, as you call it, they have to be trained to fight as well. And it's a tough form of training because the, the enemy, as you, one might call them, in other words, the people who want to digitize and, and do away with Israel, they, they're given numerous narrative points that they spout out. Very often they don't know the detail. They don't, they'll, they'll chant slogans but not know what they're talking about, really. Um, but in order to counter them, those of us who are on the side of right have to know the details. We have to know the facts, because if someone spouts out some line about apartheid Israel or whatever, we've got to know why they're not an apartheid state. Well, of course, they're not an apartheid state. We've got to know why that we've got to know what apartheid is and why Israel is not that. So and, and because the situation is constantly changing every day, every day is another crisis affecting Israel. It, the training involves it's it's constant. It's not you can't just learn something and then go, get on with it. You've got to constantly keep on top of it. And when we're talking about university students, for example, who are at the forefront of this fight, they're they're they're, they're at university trying to learn a degree, trying to study, trying to live a good life as well and have a good time. Yet what we're asking them to do is to uh, is is to is to get their heads inside this very difficult training issue but I think it's so important they do that and without it then they're basically naked they're vulnerable they can't really fight back and another another thing I would say that is needed on the battlefield and also is needed in this narrative war is courage and you can you know you can't train someone to be courageous obviously training that you give them helps them to be courageous gives them confidence but I think train I think that that kind of innate courage is something that's important and i think we're so often we are um we, you know students i'm talking about particularly now they're they're almost discouraged from being courageous by being told oh you've got to be safe you've got to have a safe space you know you can't if, if someone says something you disagree with that's terrible no it's not terrible and, and you don't need a safe space and you don't need to be safe you you need to stand up for what is right you need to have the facts behind you and you need to not be afraid of the, the 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 propaganda and and the undoubted assault insult, insults you're going to get thrown at you. Now I don't say that lightly because I also know that there's such a big machine against Israel working in US universities, and that you know that you, exam results and gradings and numerous other factors your social life can be affected by what you say about Israel. But 
you've got to, you know, you have to make a decision. Obviously, you've got to be careful about and bright about what you say, and you've got to say it in the right way. So you can't be exploited, but you have to you have to make a decision. You know, is is this important enough, or is it not to, for me to take these risks? And risk taking is really another factor as well as training and courage, taking risks, being prepared to go out on a limb and not just following what everyone else is saying. I think that's so important. Easy for me to sit here and say that, not quite as easy for someone who's right in the thick of it on a university campus. I completely agree with you. You know, I, and I agree that courage cannot be taught. I completely agree with you. And I and I think it goes back to when you when we just started this conversation and you were taught right from wrong. I think there was a time where courage was a value that civilization, that culture inculcated, that culture valued, right? As you say, we want safe spaces. Well, yeah. oh, we want brave spaces. I mean, what are you signaling to, to the youth when you say we need to create safe spaces, that you shouldn't be brave? But something that you've said at different different conferences that I've heard you said, you you keep saying, keep on attacking. You keep saying you keep on attacking. I want you to unpack that for our listeners today. What do you mean by that? Do you mean be on the offense? What, what Can you tell us more? Because it really resonates with me personally and so many youth that listen to you. They are so inspired because nobody tells them that. Nobody tells them. Everyone tells them to be so polite. Uh, so what, what, are you, what do you mean by that? Well, what we're talking about here is basically is the defense of Israel. We're we're, we're trying to defend Israel against uh, an unprecedented propaganda campaign, probably the most effective propaganda campaign in the history of the world. Well, you know, I wouldn't even call it propaganda, I'd call it a slur campaign, um, which is, has, is so powerful. So we're defending against that. But in military terms, the best form of defence is offence, is attack. So you can't, you cannot just sit back and, and wait for people to um, to have a go at you or to to have a go at Israel, something like that. You've got to get on the front foot. You've got to take the initiative, and you've got to um, you've you've got to uh, explain. And when I say attack, I'm not talking about physically attacking people. Obviously, in this, I certainly wouldn't encourage that in this environment or any environment that you didn't have to. Um, but but you know, you've got to you've got to seize the initiative, and you've got you've got to. Not, not just say, you know, oh, Israel's great. We produce bits of iPhones and we produce nice oranges and all that sort of stuff and nice people. You've got to, you've got to really also explain the nature of the enemy, what, who, who this is that is fighting Israel. Um, because pe a lot of people don't realise this. And, you know, the, the, if, you, if you go into, for example, into Gaza and, and, and into the Judea and Samaria, where a lot of this propaganda originates from among the Palestinian leadership, where they, they're, 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 they're controlling their people, they're brainwashing their people, they're preventing their people from, um, from having proper decent relations with Israel, which would be hugely beneficial to both sides, particularly beneficial to the Palestinians, yes. who are suffering because of the policy of their leadership. And, you know, if, if, if you, let's say you, you're, you're a Palestinian, you're, you're a Gaza citizen in Gaza and you get accused of spying for Israel, say. It's probably not true, probably nothing in it, but but they like to make examples of people sometimes to discourage others. So they'll you'll get dragged through the streets behind a motorbike until you're dead. Things like that. The, the, the money that's going, the vast amount of money that's going from the West, from the United States, from the UK, from European countries and elsewhere, into the Palestinian pockets 
This is not going to build hospitals and schools and, and any other facilities beneficial to the Palestinians. It is going mostly into one of two things. One is weapons to attack Israel, very often purchased from Iran or supplied by Iran. And, and, the, and that, that includes rockets. It includes billion, millions and millions of dollars spent on digging attack tunnels from Gaza, etc. And, and so that's where half, you know, one, one part of it goes. The other part of it goes into the pockets of the leadership. The Palestinian terrorist leaders, or the Palestinian leaders, whether it's Hamas, PLO, Fatah, whatever, the Palestinian leaders are some of the most wealthy terrorist leaders in the world. And, and people need to understand that. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's taking, in a way, taking the war to them. And not just talking about how great Israel is. We know it's great, and everyone knows it's great, even those who say it isn't. So right. it's that—that's what I mean, really, by attacking. And and it's 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 a mindset to 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 not just sit back and 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 accept all the crap that's going on, but to to really get on the offensive as much as you possibly can. And I agree with you. I think that we desperately, as a Jewish, and now I'm speaking just as a Jewish person. You know, um, I'm from the former Soviet Union. My father who is from Kiev and where you recently were yourself, uh, he, you know, he, he was averse to my activism. You know, he wanted me to be the quiet Jew, not the activist Jew. And I see this repetition with American Jewry of don't stick your neck out too much. Don't make a scene, be polite, be humane, said that, you know, invoking uh, Jewish values. And, and, and then the, the worst is, they're afraid to be labeled Islamophobic. Have you ever been labeled that? And what are your thoughts about that? I'm frequently labeled Islamophobic. Um, and, and of course, that is a standard way of attacking somebody who seeks to defend Israel. It's, it's absolutely top, top of the list of slurs that you can throw at people. And it's, it's obviously, it's like any form of racism. It's, it's disgusting. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, it, it can paint someone in a really really bad light and, and does all the time. Um, and to the, those people I say that, that say I'm Islamophobic, I will tell them that I have fought for Isla Islamic countries and Islamic people for their freedom and for their lives. I've been awarded medals by two Islamic nations for fighting for their people. I've been awarded a British medal for saving the lives of everyone inside a Muslim village in Bosnia when there was a a terrible incident that occurred to them. Um, so fine, Th those people who accuse me of being Islamophobic, please tell me what you've done for the Muslims. What what is it you've done? And, and you know, have you just sat there hurling out abuse and and actually attacking Israel in a way that is not just bad for Israel? It's worse for Muslims. It's worse for the Palestinians because, as I mentioned before, Palestinians could have a much much better life than they have if they were to live side by side in peace and cooperation with Israel, which is something they can do, but their leadership don't want them to, they don't let them. And, right. and I think that, that you know, by, by, by fostering this anti-Israel propaganda, you're actually, Israel is gonna survive it. Israel, of course it's, it's negative for Israel and rockets being fired and people go, kids spending days in bomb shelters in um, towns in Staros and towns and cities around Gaza, that is a terrible thing to happen and it's damaging, but it's not existential for Israel. This is, in a way, it's existential for the Palestinian people who suffer more and more and will suffer more and more until their leadership actually 
allow them to uh, to, to live a, a proper, decent life of friendship and cooperation with Israel. And those people who are the BDS movement and the other people who are throwing this muck around about Israel are simply encouraging terrorist leaders. It's, it's funny, you and I are having this conversation. It's so clear. It's clear as day to me. Uh, but it, unfortunately, the, this propaganda machine is very successful. Look, so my hat's off to them because what they have done is successfully convinced not just the youth, adults, the media outlets, major media outlets, universities. This this is, it's, it's Al Jazeera, which is owned by Qatar. Millions of dollars coming out of Qatar into United States, into England. I recently learned, I didn't know this, that Qatar owns about 30% of Heathrow Airport. They, I'm in sitting in New York right now. I heard that they own a certain percentage of the Empire State Building. Now we must ask why. This is a completely different, but this is the prop, it's a very successful propaganda warfare. And 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 I just want to say it, it it personally, it it is so alarming to me. It's so disappointing that I see the Jewish people struggling. And this, I wanna bring it back. I wanna ask you from your perspective as a non-Jewish person, what, and, it was, and, and I'm putting you on the spot. I realize it's a difficult conversation. What is it that you think that we should be doing more of and we're not doing right? I, I'd like to understand because you're a true friend, a true friend to the Jewish people. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Should we be out there having an Al Jazeera, you know, uh, propaganda, million, pumping millions into universities, what should we be doing? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, the first thing I'd say is that it's it's a very, very tough fight. We shouldn't underestimate how tough it is because the other side has gained so much traction in a propaganda campaign that has been going on since, certainly since the late 50s, early 60s, probably even before that in, in, in its current form. And you mentioned before that I'd, I'd written an article about the origins of the current anti-Israel campaign in Moscow. And that's where it began. It began in the Soviet Union. It began with Stalin, um, who, who wanted to turn what was basically a religious conflict of Muslims refusing to accept that Jews could be not only present in uh, the land of Israel, but that they could be the government of it. Because under their religious doctrine, once if, if any territory has once been... Um, controlled by Islam, it can never be controlled by anybody else. And of course, at one point, the uh, the land of Israel was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and so um, the, 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 that, that, that was, that's the basis of the conflict. It's a religious conflict. It's where Muslims do not accept Jews' right to live and exist in that country. Um, and that was turned by Moscow and Egypt working together, but the KGB in particular, it was turned into a war of national liberation in the 60s. That was, Moscow did this in many different countries around the world, created wars of national liberation, and they turned the, they created the Palestinian people. There was no such thing as a Palestinian people before Moscow invented it. There were obviously Arabs living there, but they weren't called, the the original Palestinians were Jews. Absolutely. and, and um, so they, they invented this identity for them and they invented a narrative by which the Jews had just moved in from Europe and taken over their land, taken over their territory, stole, it from, stole their property from them. And, and this was a, a, you know, a small, desperate people struggling 
to fight back against it. And this was a narrative, which is a false narrative. It was then, it is today, that was created um, by by Moscow. So I think. And I think, why? Why do you think uh, Moscow did this? Why did the KGB did do this? What are your thoughts? The, the reason they did it was because when Israel was first for reformed, re-established in 
an iconic build, not not of some back street in Dubai, an iconic building in Dubai, very fashionable building, a big big kosher restaurant, absolutely packed full, and not 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 with Jews alone. Um, so so it, you know, and and they see this, they they can see this going on, the, the Palestinian people, and they think, well, if our Arab brothers can deal with them, why can't we deal with them? That, that terrified. Um, Abbas and the other leaders in in the of the Palestinians, and and then we so that's and I think that's been a great success, and, and it's obviously there's a lot more work to do, and it's got to be developed further and further. But the current uh, normalization activity is focused on Saudi Arabia. Now, those three countries that signed up to the Abraham Accords would certainly not have done so without Saudi Arabia's approval. So behind the scenes, Saudi Arabia gave them the green light to do that. And Saudi Arabia want now to normalize relations with Israel. I know that. I was in um, uh, the capital, I forgot my name of it, now Riyadh. I was in Riyadh um, a few years ago, and I had meetings with government officials there who, who told me that they were going to normalize with Israel. They explained some of the problems that stood in the way, but they were absolutely clear about that. Um, and I also understood very clearly that the, the Palestinian issue was not going to be a big problem. Now, that's often kind of put forward by many commentators as being the thing that will stop it, unless Israel grants a, 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 an independent state to the Palestinians, their normalization will not go ahead. That's not the way the Saudis are thinking. Absolutely is not the way the Saudis are thinking. As a matter of fact... You do not think that the Saudis are going to push uh, Israel to, to do some sort of... Uh, some sort of move that would placate the Palestinian Authority. I think the Saudis will probably, uh, and this talk, these talks are going on right now as we speak. I think the Saudis will probably uh, ask Israel to make some kind of concessions, but they're going to be minor concessions, like you know, statements of intent, perhaps a you know repudiation of the idea of Israel annexing Judea and Samaria. These sort of moves, which I think you know, palatable to Israel, in my view, not obviously all Israelis, some would resist it strongly, but but I think the government would probably be, be able to, to get away with that. But I think one of the biggest problems is the Biden administration. Now, Biden has been kind of standing on his soapbox, talking about Let's how... Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Well, he's been talking about how he's going to try and bring about normalisation. But I think behind the scenes, they are trying to press the Saudis into extracting far greater concessions from the Israelis than the Saudis want. I think that's what's happening. Why? Why? Why do you why? Because, why? Because, well, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons. There's three main reasons why this is going on. One, of course, one, one reason why Biden wants a deal with between Saudi, well, a, a, a kind of deal between Saudi, the US and Israel, is because he wants, he wants to have some kind of foreign affairs legacy. He's screwed up every aspect of foreign affairs since he's been president. The war in Ukraine that's going on now is, in my opinion, directly Putin invaded Ukraine exactly because about six months later, because Biden pulled out of Afghanistan in such a humiliating way I and Putin that. saw the weakness of the United States. So that was one of Biden's foreign policy fiascos. Another one is the allowing um, China, the, the, the kind of Western world's arch enemy, China to broker a deal between Iran and uh and, and Saudi Arabia, which was a, a real, um, you know, real undermining of the US. Yeah. And so that's the second reason. 
And the third reason, on top of this kind of legacy of a foreign policy hit, is he wants to be the man who brought peace between Israel and um, and, and, and the Palestinians. And so, you know, he, he thinks, because he knows how much Saudi want this deal, and the deal involves what they really want out of it, apart from cooperation with Israel, which is already happening anyway. What they really want is is certain U.S. guarantees on nuclear energy, on defense, and on provision of high-tech military equipment. That's what they want. The Saudis want that out of it. So Biden sees that as leverage to be able to, to persuade Israel that in order to normalize with Saudi, which is so important for Israel, then they, they must uh, go along with a two-state solution. It's not going to happen. There's no way it's going to happen. But that's, what, that's what's behind his thinking. And from the Saudi perspective, why, 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 why do you think they want to align with Israel? From Israel's perspective, I think it's going to be a huge win and and so important. Why do you think, from the Saudis, they want to to align with with America and Israel? Well, they're terrified of Iran, even though they've got this Chinese brokered deal with, with or not deal, but normalization with Iran, which their their diplomatic relations have broken down for a long time. But they're terrified of Iran. Iran is embarked on a nuclear program, which mm-hmm. is progressing on very, very fast uh, and, and would be working, would be even faster if it wasn't for Israel's military action and um, you know, black ops within uh, Iran uh, that, that we all know about that have been going on for a long time. That would That's really put a break on. It's not stopped it, but it's put a bit of and a in, break on. And in your mind, I, I know we can't play, you know, you know, fortune tellers here, but if Iran did have, God forbid, a nuke, do you think they would use it? I, think- I think I think we have to assume they would. I think, you know, my, my assumption, we, we've heard we've heard Putin banging on endlessly since he invaded Ukraine about the nuclear weapon. He's threatened the West with nuclear attack numerous times. Now, I don't believe for one moment he will use it because although he's... Um, you know he's he's done some very nasty things, and he's not a nice man, either to his own people or to other countries in the world. He's not insane. He's not irrational. He's a rational thinker. He knows that if he attacks either Ukraine or the West with nuclear weapons, then Russia will be ser- seriously damaged, well beyond anything that has happened so far. Now, and that was also the case during the Cold War. I think you know it was pretty clear that nuclear weapons weren't going to be used then. But Iran is a different issue. I believe that Iran, we, we, we must assume it. We don't. We can't foresee the future. We have to assume it. Um, you can't assume it won't happen. I think Iran would be willing to bombard Israel with nuclear weapons if it had them and if they could get through, knowing that millions of Iranians are likely to die in the retaliation attacks, either from the US or Israel. But that doesn't matter. That you know, the, the, the mentality of, of the Iranian leadership is that, you know, for, for, for what is right, which is the destruction of Israel, it doesn't matter how much their people suffer. So, you know, I, don't, I couldn't stand up and say confidently they will use it if they get it, but I think we have to make that assumption and therefore they simply cannot be allowed to become a nuclear-armed country. And that's one, it's obviously a big fear for Israel. It's also a very, very big fear for Saudi Arabia, which is why, they are so keen and, and have been cooperating with Israel for a number of years now. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, in the final question, which is a little bit uh, 
difficult, but I'm, you know, I love asking difficult questions. When I met you a few years ago, uh, you reminded me of Emile Zola. Now for our listeners and viewers, Emile Zola was a uh, French writer of the 19th century. And he witnessed as a journalist, he was covering uh, the uh, Dreyfus affair. And in 1898, he penned a letter, J'accuse, which translates to I accuse. And he accused the French government of basically anti-Semitism. This letter has become canonical for, 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 for Jewish history because it's the consciousness of humanity. It's the consciousness of humanity pointing a finger and saying, anti-Semitism is a disease. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jew, is just, it's, it's a, as they say, canary. The Jew is the canary in the coal mine. And so this is my question for you as we, as we conclude. If you were to pen such a letter today, J'accuse, who would you accuse in fomenting anti-Semitism? The oldest well, I'd certainly accuse the French government of it, <laughs> as, as Zola did. But um, and that, yeah, that's obviously slightly tongue-in-cheek. But I think I would accuse various governments around the world of anti-Semitism, including the British government and the American government. And I don't say that they are. I mean, when I, when I say anti-Semitism, I think one thing that I'm very clear about is that being anti. Zionist or anti-Israel is a form of anti-Semitism. It is anti-Semitism. So those countries, those governments that that work against Israel and that side with Israel's enemies, and I think you know, I think Britain and the US are both two two of Israel's closest possible friends. But they they do they do they are in some ways anti-Semitic because they do side with Israel's enemies on many many things. I think it's becoming less so over here in the UK than it was maybe a few years ago, but it's still the case. So I would accuse them. But I would also, I think probably I would accuse, I would certainly accuse um, a lot of university professors uh, of being anti-Semitic in their, in their BDS campaigns and their, their, their allow, not, not just allowing, but also leading students against Israel and against the supporters of Israel and, and against the Jews. And, and I think one thing in the universities that we should understand that maybe people don't fully understand is that the, the BDS movement and the other anti-Israel movements, they have no expectation that they will um, destroy Israel. They, they, they know they won't. It, you know, the BDS movement so far has had zero impact on Israel's economy, zero impact, despite you know, the years it's been going on, the efforts been going into it. So they know they're not going to do that. What they, their target, the target of most of these groups, are Jews in America, in Britain, in Germany, in France, wherever else. That's their target. And why is that their target? If that's not anti-Semitic, I don't know what it is, but why is that their target? It's their target because they know that the greatest supporters of Israel in every country around the world are going to be Jews. It's a simple fact. It's obvious. And, and they want to undermine that support. They want to, they want to stop um, Jewish students on university campuses, Jewish professors as well, from sticking up for Israel and sticking up against their BDS campaigns. That's what they want to do. And so they, 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 you know, they, they, they put students in a position where not only will they 
not stand up for Israel in some cases. There's some brave students who do, and I've met many of them, and I admire them immensely. Um, but some of them won't just not stand up for Israel. Increasingly, they're attacking Israel. Jews, Jewish students are attacking Israel on the most specious grounds that you can imagine, um, being handed the lines to attack Israel by these different movements. And on campuses where there are Jewish anti-Israel chapters which exist on numerous campuses, that's where the greatest number of anti-Semitic attacks occur of, of any university by a very large number. So I think I would, you know, I would put them at the top of the list. And also I would have a go at the media. Before I, 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 know, I know this was our, probably our final question, but I do want to say one other thing that I think is quite important. And you asked me a question early, which I didn't really answer, which was what can the Jews do? What can we do differently? Well, I, I don't want to go into tactics and details. Obviously, everyone has their own themes and their own campaigns and their own circumstances. So, and it's really for everyone to do what they can. But what I would say, and I say this to Jewish students, whether they're in high schools or universities or whatever, and I think it's important for people to re recognize that it is not to, 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 to stand up for Israel and to fight against this, this um, horrific anti-Israel slur campaign. It's not a burden. This shouldn't, we should, we, none of us who are involved in this should see it as a burden. Instead, we should see it as an honour. It is an honour to stand up and fight for the state of Israel. We know what Israel's like. We know they deserve to be stood up for and defended. And we should see it as an honour. In, in the same way as previous generations saw it as an honour to stand up and fight for Israel in battle in the Yom Kippur War, which I think began um, in 1973 today, or, or the next day or so. Um, and... And, and these people, you know, they, 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 of course, they fought, they fought for their country and they, 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 they you know, many, many of them were killed and wounded. But for them, it was also an honour to do so. And, and generations of Jews going right the way back, thousands and thousands of years back, have seen it as an honour to, to fight for their people. And, and I think our students today in the US, UK, anywhere else, they should, when, when, they, when they consider whether to take up arms or not, and by arms I mean take up the narrative, the counter-narrative, I think they should see it as being not just defending Israel, but defending the Jewish people, because the Jewish people are accused of despicable things as part of the anti-Israel campaign. And, you know, they, 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 these young people, as I said, I have huge admiration for them. They take those of them who do stand up, they do take risks with their future, with their their present life, etc. Um, but what they're doing, they're not they're not they're not just countering any a sort of random narrative that they think is wrong. They're actually sticking up for their own family, for their own sisters, brothers, mothers, and in future for their kids. And therefore, like I said, they should take it as not a burden, not something we we have to go and do. It's a real real nightmare, but they should say, you know, that at this time, at this place, when I was needed. I was there and I stood up and, and, and fought for Israel. And that is exactly why there's no one like you. I'm very serious. I couldn't have said it better. I wanted to say it. I was a student once. I fought anti-Semitism that looked like anti-Israel. It was never a burden because what I was doing was standing up for myself as a Jew, for my people, for my history, for my mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And so Again, I'm I'm so grateful for your time. I know you're a very busy man. Um, 
I have so many more questions, but we are going to come to an end. And so I just want to say that for Jewish TV channel and BIPAC news, I'm Naya Lecht. Stay tuned as Jewish TV channel and BIPAC news invite more courageous warriors and thought leaders for the Jewish people, for the land of Israel and the Western world. Thank you so much for your time, Colonel Kemp. And thank, thank you. you. It's a great pleasure, Naya. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.